you hear basically what what you kind of read. And so depending on where you're at, like fiduciary, for instance, you're thinking, oh, my God, the world is coming to an end. And I can quite directly say, well, it's not coming to an end. It just might be changing a bit. Welcome to episode 24 of You're a Financial Planner, Now What? I'm your host, Hannah Moore, certified financial planner and owner of Guiding Wealth Management. I'm so excited to share with you today's interview with Ed Jurgensen. Ed is a chairman of the Financial Planning Association, and in that role, he was very much on the front lines of the DOL fiduciary rule. Ed shares with us the conversations that he had leading up to the ruling, the reasoning behind several controversial elements, and the impact that he sees the rule having on firms and practitioners alike. This is an incredible glimpse into the DOL fiduciary ruling and an episode you won't want to miss. But before we jump in, I want to share part of a project I've been working on for you. Many of you have reached out to me and in talking with you, I heard that you want more real life stories and examples. Knowing this, I've been partnering with seasoned advisors to give you their very best real life client case studies. We'll put it out to you. How would you respond if you were the advisor in this situation? And then we'll share what the advisor did or wishes they would have done and the outcome of the story. I've got some great stories already, and I can't wait to share them with you. If you haven't already, sign up for our emails at financialplannerpodcast.com and you'll be the first to know. Let's jump right into this episode. Well, thanks for joining me today, Ed. Great to be here, Anna. Thank you. Yeah, well, today I want to talk about what does the DOL fiduciary rule, like what does that mean and how does that impact practices and advisors uh, specifically? And I immediately thought of you as somebody to bring on. So can you just give us just a brief, who are you and kind of give us a list of your qualifications? So I've been in practice for about 23 years now um, as a certified financial planner. I currently sit as chairman of the board of directors for the Financial Planning Association. So I've had sort of a front row seat to all that has developed on the DOL with my role over the last three years um, in, in this leadership role with FPA and then previously three years on the national board. So I've been very involved with this um, from the very beginning. Can you tell us a little bit of a backstory behind the fiduciary? Because I mean, you have 60 years of kind of history that you've seen front row. Like what what have those six years been like regarding the fiduciary issue? Well, the, the fiduciary rule, uh, the Department of Labor issued an update to their rule in 2010. And so remember, back in 1974, this is when the Department of Labor first came out with this idea that if you're handling people's money, you should probably be a fiduciary. But back in 1974, the only thing that was really out there were pensions. There were no such things as IRAs. IRAs were created by the 1974 ERISA Act. 401ks weren't even invented yet. So this was more focused on institutional or professionally managed money for individuals. And so after a couple calamities where pensions sort of disappeared and, and pension plans collapsed, This is where the Department of Labor said, hey, we should probably put a rule in place that was actually approved by Congress, overwhelming majority, in 1974. So you fast forward to today, you know, and you look at where we're at today in terms of personal finance. You've got IRAs, you've got 401ks, you've got Roth IRAs, Roth 401ks. And so the need to sort of reaffirm that people who are giving personal financial advice should hold their clients best interest first and foremost was needed. So when did this conversation start? I mean, was this something that the FPA kind of initiated or is were there always kind of rumblings of it or what was the starting point of this? 
Yeah, so in 2010, when the when the Department of Labor first put this rule up, we really didn't talk much about it. We really didn't support it in any way, shape, or form. And then they had a re-proposed rule, which meant that they kind of went back to the drawing board and they looked at the original rule, which in essence, you know, sort of only said, well, fees only good and commissions not good. And they, after a lot of input from um, the industry and the profession, they made some pretty pretty dramatic changes. And so they re-proposed the rule. Um, and from that, then the FPA got involved through the Financial Planning Coalition, which is made up of the Financial Planning Association, Certified Financial Planner Board of Standards, and National Association of Personal um, Financial Advisors, or NAFA. And when we started to look at the rule and what was being proposed, there were things that we agreed with, and there were things that we didn't think were very applicable to helping individuals. And the, the foundational element to this is fiduciary. It's something we strongly believe in. As a certified financial planner, we believe in it. We adhere to that. Um, and those in the RIA business, those who take fees, are also a fiduciary. So we thought this was a good move in terms of encapsulating a profession that has evolved well beyond what the 1974 law intended. With that 2010 that we proposed rule, what did you disagree with? Well, the 2010 rule was much more restrictive. And so there was a lot of pushback from industry and not a lot of support that that we saw towards that rule. And so, again, the Department of Labor sort of said, OK, we're going to we're going to sort of take this away and we're going to kind of noodle on this a little bit more. And then that's when they came back with their reproposed rule um, in terms of allowing fees and commissions and some certain elements from that process. So the reproposed rule was much more um, flexible, if you would, in terms of meeting the, the financial industry's current landscape. Okay, so the proposed rule in 2010, and then did it just go to committees or kind of what is that process like? Well, it's a great question. So not being a political wonk, I, I think what happens is that the Department of Labor was charged with updating the rule. They proposed the rule, they went through you know, a disclosure and they, they put together basically a comment period. And so the industry came back in 2010 and said, we really don't like this rule. And it, it, it's actually, it, it can't work within the current um, uh, confines, if you would, of the financial services profession in terms of leaning more heavily only to fee. And so the Department of Labor went back, recreated and recrafted the rule and then reproposed that rule to today. And so that's what we're seeing was this has been sort of a, a year and a half effort where the Department of Labor reproposed the rule, made some adjustments to it in terms of allowing fees and commissions, and then going through a long comment period, congressional comment period. They were talking to the regulators, being the Securities and Exchange Commission and FINRA, and they were talking to a lot of industry groups to try to get this right. And then that reproposed rule, once they had all the comment period, they made some additional tweaks, and then they, they presented the rule. Uh, basically saying that this is going to be the rule. And so now, you know, here's what we're being faced with, with an implementation schedule um, in 2017. Okay, so what does it mean to be a fiduciary in 2017? How is that different than where we were last year or even this year? Well, I think the big difference is, is that back in, if you were following ERISA law, it, it only basically counted towards 401ks and those giving advice to 401ks. And this has expanded to IRAs. 
because again, remember in 1974, the ERISA Act basically created IRAs. So there wasn't any money at all in IRAs back when this law was first first enacted. Where today, I mean, there's there's you know trillions of dollars that are potentially going to be going into IRAs. And so that's the expansive nature of this rule is that it not only encompasses retirement plans, but also encompasses IRAs. And that's where the, the major fundamental shift in this rule has occurred. Okay, for a lot of people I've heard, they've kind of have this in their mind that in order to be a fiduciary, you have to be fee only. Mm -hmm. And from what you've just said, that's not the case. Is that right? Yeah, that, that's absolutely true. The, what the Department of Labor, it, it, the, the privilege of the position that I am in terms of leadership for FPA is we got one-on-one -on -one meetings with the Department of Labor, with the folks that are actually actually crafting these rules. And it was fascinating in regards to you know their thought processes and, and what they were trying to accomplish. And then hearing feedback from those in the room, myself, I'm a, I'm a fee and commission planner, right? I, I'm not bad because I take commissions, I just do it in a fiduciary way. Conversely, we had people in the room that were fee only. So we had a really robust discussion over what the Department of Labor was trying to accomplish in terms of protecting the public and how that might be able to fit in the practical application of our day-to-day -day businesses. So in essence, in its purest form, being a fiduciary is doing what's best on behalf of the client. And so what that means is full and fair disclosure, making sure the client knows not only what they're investing in, but how the, the advisor is being compensated. And so that's the fundamental question. You know, people think, well, if I'm fee only, then I'm just charging, then I'm a fiduciary. Well, that's true, right? So if you're charging fees, you're a fiduciary. If I charge commissions, right now I'm under only under a suitability rule, which is basically under FINRA. And so that suitability rule means that it just has to be suitable for you, which means that if you're a 45-year-old male who's married, that this product just has to kind of fit towards your um, lifestyle, given your income and your net worth. It doesn't mean it has to be in the best interest, which creates conflicts, potential conflicts in terms of compensation. And that's the, that's the real name, if you would, of the Department of Labor rule um, in terms of um, trying to remove as many conflicts, uh, conflicted advice as you can. So one of my struggles with the fiduciary is if I sit in a room of financial advisors and give out a situation, I could hear as many advisors are there, there are the same amount of opinions on what somebody should do. So how do you tell, how, how do you distinguish like between what is best for the client? H I guess, how do you reconcile the various perspectives on what would be best for the client? Yeah, and that's the practical application of this, right? And that's what gets a lot of people uneasy is the fuzzy nature, if you would, of a fiduciary relationship. And so as one person described it, to, you know, the, the famous case in terms of, you know, I, when I see pornography, I know it, right? It's hard, to, it's hard to describe it, but when I see it, I know it. And fiduciary is something very similar in terms of the fact that if I have a choice, if I'm sitting across from a client and I have a choice of putting the client in two different products, and one of the products uh, has a fee that pays me, let's say, 1%, if you would, in terms of compensation, and I've got another product that pays me 2% in compensation, naturally, some sales folks may go to the 2% compensation, even though the, the product may be similar, or maybe a little bit higher fee. Well, that's not in the best interest of the client. So when we're talking about this, you, you want to avoid any kind of conflicts in regards to how you're being compensated. Again, 
the the onus is on the advisor saying what is in the absolute best interest of the client. Another example, and this is what the DOL was sort of touching on, is clients have 401ks. 401k rollovers are a huge business. And so somebody might be going from a 401k plan into my firm to manage those assets. So whether I'm fee or commission, I have an inherent conflict of interest because I get paid more if that client brings those assets over to my firm. And so what the Department of Labor wants to make sure is that if I'm giving that advice to roll those assets out of that plan into my guidance and into my um, into my firm, that I'm doing this at the best interest of the client. So for instance, if the client really doesn't need any guidance or financial planning or anything, and they're in a really low cost 401k plan, if I'm rolling those assets over into my firm, I better have a good reason why I did that. And so what are the good reasons to do that? I mean, what would be considered acceptable? Well, one of the biggest things right now, and we're getting a lot of conversations with some major firms, is that they're all of a sudden um, understanding that financial planning is a value add. And we saw this when we were supporting the DOL that go figure, you know, financial planning would be a good element in terms of relationships. We're just not selling product or giving specific investment advice. We're giving overall comprehensive financial advice. And that is the key for this Department of Labor role in terms of being part of the Financial Planning Association is that that additional element of um, care, if you would, to the client, giving them comprehensive financial advice, that's something that they're not necessarily going to get sitting at a 401k, you know, looking at a screen. With what you're saying, you're saying that the financial planning fee is wrapped up into the investment management fee. Uh-huh. Is, is that kind of the perspective that they've taken on this? Yeah. So if you look at advisors today, you have firms that just give investment advice, right? So they're an investment advisory firm. So all they're doing is they're, they're basically taking client assets, rolling it into their firm, doing some sort of a, an, a, an evaluation on how much risk you want to take and things like that. But then at the, at the end of the day, all they're really truly doing is just giving investment advice. You should be in these stocks or funds or bonds. They're just really just doing investing on behalf of the client. So there are those in our profession that do investment advisory work, but they also do financial planning. So for instance, in our firm, you roll your assets into our firm, everyone in our firm gets financial planning. We have very few, if any, clients who are only here just for investments. So nearly every client has to go through a financial planning process where we create balance sheets and income statements because of the comprehensive nature of that we think is really, really important. To get to your question, what's happened is over the years is that advisors have wrapped their investment advisory fee within their financial planning work, which means that you charge, let's say I charge 1%, well, that includes financial planning and the investment advisory. So what we're seeing is more and more firms are looking at that and saying, you know what, just straight investment advisory appears to be commoditized. It's being discounted. Those fees are getting compressed. If I split that fee and charge a separate financial planning fee, I'm really showing the client that my value add is financial planning, not necessarily invest, just pure investment advice. Does that help or hurt the cause for the fiduciary for those firms who, I mean, obviously they're going to be considered fiduciary because they're doing the financial planning Correct. piece of it, but would they have to then show that their investment management piece is competitive with the low cost 401k that just was rolled over? Yeah. If you're just doing investment advisory work and you're not doing any planning at all, 
you're going to be subject to that rule. Even though you're a fee-only advisor and you're under fiduciary, you are still potentially conflicted in bringing assets over, rollover assets from a 401k, because you're compensated more should those assets come over to your firm. So again, you have to do an evaluation on, on you know, cost-benefit analysis. Is that right? Does the client get something more? Do I have an ability to, to diversify more than the 401k? So there's a lot of factors that go into that. And what we're saying is when we're talking to firms that are just doing investment advice, to say, you know what? You should probably hire one or two financial planners, CFPs, and offer a more broad financial planning relationship as well. Because then that's a lot easier to say, you know what, not only are we just doing investment advice, but comprehensive financial planning, which is not available at a 401k provider. So we're thinking and talking to different folks that that's a great way to augment your business in terms of adding planning, financial planning services for those rollover assets. So you really see this ruling as a way of really promoting the financial planning in a broader sense than it's ever really been before. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So what, what people want to, I mean, typically when a client comes in, what they really want to know is, or the first thing they ask is, you know, Ed, here's my bag of money and make me as much money as you can, but don't lose it. Right. They're all focused on what, you know, the sexy, the bow and the ribbon, which is the, the portfolio that that bag of money is really important. But we have to figure out why they want to invest and where they want to invest. And that's the that's the importance behind going through a full financial planning process because you understand what the client needs. You understand what that portfolio needs to accomplish. So from a business practicality standpoint, it's, it's a much stickier relationship because you're more than just a quarterly number based upon the S&P 500. You are the trusted financial planner for the individual, and now you're much more involved in their financial life. So it helps not only the client, it not only helps the profession, but it also helps you as an advisor create more sticky business. So what's the response that you've heard from the industry as a whole? Because I feel like the financial planners may be a smaller portion of the overall investment profession or industry, I guess you would say. So that's a great question. And I can share with you when we were walking around Capitol Hill talking about this, they're like, who are you and why are you supporting this? Um, the Financial Planning Association has been stewards of um, fiduciary for quite some time. Um, in 2005, we sued the Securities and Exchange Commission on a rule that was created in 1999 that allowed commission-based uh, brokers to receive fees without being a fiduciary. And so we sued under that rule and we were successful. It was sort of the David and Goliath. And so FPA has always been fundamentally rooted in doing what's best on behalf of the client because that helps all of our businesses. Fast forward to the DLL rule in our work within the Financial Planning Coalition, and we're seeing the same thing, that industry is so stacked against us, not only um, Wall Street firms and major full service firms, but also the insurance industry. They spent millions of dollars lobbying against this rule, and yet the small but mighty voice of the coalition and FPA and its, its members prevailed. It's a really great story. And it's really neat to be part. I mean, I'm, I, I pay my $400 dues, you know, every year. And it's, it's neat to say that you're part of something that's bigger, I guess, than what you are yourself and really creating this change within the society at large. 
Well, and I think, again, it's the privilege of position. I mean, we're volunteers, right? So this is not a paid position for me. I've been volunteering in one way or another for the past you know, 12 years with an FPA. And there's thousands of volunteers across the country who spend a lot of their time not only trying to uh, improve the profession, but also, you know, as you had said, society as a whole. And to see that you might have a little part in something that's that's this dramatic of a change that can benefit everyone in the long run is pretty amazing. And when you look at the dues that, that our members are paying, you know, those are volunteer dues. You voluntarily write a check every year to become or to stay a member of FPA. And so it's incumbent upon the association to make sure that we're giving value where the advisor needs that value. And this is one of the areas that it's not like, wow, you know, this is great, you did great work, but I can tell everyone who's listening to this that a lot of great work has been done just because of the relationships, not only within our members who went to Capitol Hill, the one-on-ones, but all the input that we received over the years. It was just incredibly invaluable and uh, just empowering to see all the support we've gotten from our members. Kind of going back to this rule, I want to talk about how it's going to impact existing businesses. Are there going to be grandfathered accounts? I mean, because I know some of the other rules that have come out, there's been just, you know, if you're in this account, like you're fine, don't worry about it. Is there any grandfathering effect with the fiduciary? Yeah, my understanding is there's going to be a grandfathering effect, especially when it comes to 12B1 fees. I'll call this, I'll call this over the next couple of years. This is sort of the messy period. This is going to be a transitionary period in which firms who've been doing business under under basically laws that have been around for 80 years are going to have to start changing a little bit in terms of not looking at what's in the best interest of them and their firm, but ultimately the client. And so different firms will be affected at different levels, different industries, the insurance industry, for instance, may have a greater impact on them rather than those, let's say, on the opposite end of the spectrum who are just investment advisors taking fees. And if you would read some of what I'll politely call the rhetoric from different firms, they're, they're saying that this is the end of the world and nobody's going to get advice and um, the whole industry is going to collapse and we're going to throw the, the middle market consumer, those who don't make a lot of money out to the street because they can't afford you know, fee-only advice. Um, what we lean on is we say, you know what, as certified financial planners, we have you know tens of thousands of advisors across the country who already act in a fiduciary capacity. So in this interim period, yes, there's gonna be some disruption and there's gonna be some changes, but overall, I think the industry is not only gonna be much better off, but also the, the, the people that we serve, the clients we serve are gonna be better off as well. So one of my questions with the fiduciary, and kind of just with my experience of when I was at the broker dealer, I knew a lot of clients and advisors who had clients in like American funds accounts where there's a charge of commission up front. They've been in the accounts for 10 years. The advisor's getting paid 25 basis points. Uh Is that considered fiduciary or what would need to happen on that account for it to be considered fiduciary? Well, that's not a fiduciary relationship. And I think American funds is probably one of the largest firms out there whose business model is under review from their own internal folks. And so when you look at it, it's interesting when I talk to my friends who are fee only, you know, they think just because you're taking commission, you're evil, right? Because you're not at the fiduciary standard, you're, you're at a, a lower standard, you're at the suitability standard. Well, when we get down to cost and cost analysis, I can, I can pull up a great American funds portfolio that the fund has low costs, I get paid at 25 basis points, and I can compare that to an advisor who's fee only and show them how much more cost effective an American funds portfolio is. 
And so the difference is, though, is that that's not a fiduciary relationship with the American Funds portfolio. So don't forget, a fiduciary relationship includes two things, duty of loyalty and duty of care. So technically speaking, the duty of loyalty is I need to be engaged with you as a client for ongoing compensation. That's not necessarily true in terms of 12B1 fees. If I look at what's been happening over the last you know, 10 years, if you would, with the, with the broker-dealer regulator, FINRA, they're becoming closer and co closer to fiduciary-like standards without dropping the F word. So they're making us, being on our side in terms of brokers, in terms of those who take commission, they're making sure that we're not only looking out after the client, but you know, not only why did you have that client buy that particular security or sell that particular security, they've also gone to the fact of saying, why is that client holding that security? And my comment is that's kind of duty of loyalty, which is fiduciary. And they're like, oh, yeah, whatever. <laughs> so um, it's, interest it's interesting if you look at it, it's purest form. Our, our industry, the financial services industry, my relationship with my client is predicated on how I get paid. So if I get paid by commission, right, I'm under a suitability standard. If I get paid from a fee, I'm on fiduciary standard. In, in my humble opinion, that, should, that shouldn't even take place. It doesn't matter if you get paid by fee or commission. You should be a fiduciary on behalf of your client, meaning it's full and fair disclosure. That, I think that's one of the elements that gets some people nervous that if all I'm doing is selling annuities to clients, what I'm going to be required to do is to tell the client how much I'm compensated on a particular annuity. So I might be making $5,000 on a commission on a big annuity. Before, I wouldn't have to disclose that to the client. Now I do. So now I have to, now I have to figure out how to get that client to know my value added to the relationship is more than just a big commission check. So let's go. I want to go through those two issues. You said the fiduciaries, the duty of loyalty and the duty of care. So with that duty of loyalty, can you give me more of a, like, what does that mean? Like practically, what does that mean? So if you were a client of a broker dealer, you came in and we just sold you a stock and I sold you, you know, XYZ stock. I have no real, you know, it's gotten a lot tighter in terms of regulations, but you know, before I could just sell that stock and just leave it in the account and not really even touch base with you at all. I have no, I have no duty to you over the long run in terms of making sure that that stock is still uh, adequate for your portfolio. Or we create an entire portfolio based upon commission, and I put the portfolio together. It's done. I earned my commission, and, and a sort of off we go, and I really don't need to change anything. Or if I do want to change something, then I'm going to earn more commission. So. There is no long-term duty in terms of monitoring your portfolio on a day-to-day -day basis, if you would, under the suitability rule. If I look at today with the, in the fiduciary rule, not only do I have to make sure I've got the duty of care, but also there's an ongoing relationship that I'm monitoring what's going on in your account. That's where the duty of loyalty comes in. So we're tying the client and the advisor closer together. So it's just not transactional business being buying and selling a security for commission. It's a relationship sort of uh, business now in terms of financial services. One of the arguments that I've heard um, it for against the fiduciary is that some clients just don't want that ongoing relationship. Like they just want somebody to be able to 
place this trade and be done with it. Is that going to be possible going forward within the retirement space? So I can tell you this, if I'm thinking about a client like that, so a client comes in and all they want to do is trade stocks through our firm and the client really doesn't even want to talk to me, why do I want that business, right? So for me, I'd be like, you know what, go to an online trading firm because A, they're going to be cheaper. And if you're not looking for any advice, just doing it yourself, go find a, go find a different way of doing that kind of business. So if I look at the landscape, especially if I look at those younger folks who are coming into the profession, that's not, they're not necessarily into the transaction business. They're into the relationship business. I'm seeing more and more of this in regards to just not just financial advice, not just specific investment advice around one single product. So you've got people in the profession who have built their businesses and careers on transactional business, and there's nothing wrong with that. But since the rules coming out and there's some changes that are going to be made, those are the folks that are going to be caught in this transition period in terms of, okay, I've built my business off of just transactions and transactions. Now I need to have that changed if I'm dealing with retirement accounts. One of the things that, again, you've even mentioned here is that people are saying it's going to be much more expensive for that middle class in order to get investment advice. And so do you see that the cost for the middle class will actually rise with this? Or, I mean, what's your thought on that? I think one of the great things that I saw is last year during the heated debates on over the conflict of interest rule, the, the fiduciary rule at the DOL, was that most major firms were, Wall Street firms were attacking this again, as we had talked about against the middle class. Yet we are seeing some major firms not only lowered their minimums, but also lowered their fees. So we were using that sort of, you know, anecdotally as evidence to those against the rule to say, look, the profession is not going to give up billions of dollars of business. They're not, that's just not in the nature of a capitalist type of economy. Somebody's going to fill that void. So ultimately, the cost to the client may stay the same, if not go down, because you've got a lot of different avenues, you've got people who are going to try to fill that void one way or the other. So I don't see it as, oh my gosh, you know, tens of thousands, if not millions of investors are going to be shunned and not given advice because we're worried about what we have to do on behalf of the client. We don't want to hold ourselves to that fiduciary standard. So again, I look at this as sort of the messy period between when the rule is going to be um, implemented and then basically the profession sort of adheres to the rule when we get to the back side of this, the, the, the outside of this, I think things are going to be much more clear and people are going to understand that I can get good financial advice for a reasonable cost um, in a fiduciary manner. In all the conversations that you had, was there any sense of this is what is the reasonable cost for financial advice? I mean, were they putting a per, like 1%, 2% or looking at like at capping that? No, it's a great question. So when we were sitting across from the table from them, my, my first question was, this looks like a fee-heavy sort of approach, that you guys are embracing fee as fee only, and that's the way to go. And they said, no. They said, our finger is not on the scale towards fee or commission. And as they were sort of going through the whole conflict of interest theory in terms of whether I'm fee or, or commission, I'm conflicted. I'm like, you know what? I get that, and I understand that. So ultimately, at the end of the day, the commission side of the business will still be there. It's just going to be more of an effect of 
you're going to be slowed down a bit because now you're going to have to have a contract that obligates you to be a fiduciary with the client. And that's the BICE or the best interest contract, or they call it the BIC or the BICE. That's the new part of this rule that gets some people nervous because it makes the advisor, but it makes the firm, puts the firm on the hook of making sure that their advisors are adhering to a fiduciary standard on behalf of their clients. Can you tell us more about what is that BICE? I've seen that term floated around. Yeah, so it's just basically a contract between you, it, well, between the firm, if you would, and the, and the, the ultimate client basically outlining all the different relationships, who gets paid, how people get paid. And there's a lot of those. I have not yet seen a completed BICE contract, like a sample template. They're starting to come out now. Um, I think the rule is just out in May. So we're starting to see more and more of this. So for individuals who are working for big firms and big organizations, those firms are going to say, here, this is what you're going to need. So there's going to be little leeway in terms of what you're able to do. Advisors who are on their own or in small firms are going to have to help create those kind of contracts as well. And I know the Financial Planning Association is, is starting in with relationships with other firms to help our members prepare for that. So exactly what goes into the buys, there are certain elements um, of that. But it's just the, the biggest, the two biggest things is one, you're contractually obligated to be a fiduciary. Two is disclosure. You're just, you know, all your fees and all the expenses and things that you're basically involved in with a client, that's what needs to be um, disclosed. This may be an off-point question, but with this contract, you said it's between the firm and the client. Is that going to be with the, the broker-dealer or the RAA firm and the client, or does it actually tie in the advisor directly to the client? It's between the firm and the client, and that's where some firms are nervous. And this is this is very, very different than the way it used to be. And initially, the thinking was it would be between the client and the advisor. But when you look at firms like Schwab and others that have call centers, it makes it very, very impractical because someone might call into a call center and get one representative, call in again and get another representative. And each one of those people would have to have an individual vice contract with that client. So one of the, one of the things that the Department of Labor did is say, OK, you know what, we get that. So let's have it between the firm and ultimately the client. And I think that's that's what helped tremendously in regards to kind of getting this through. And that's what you're doing. You're obligating the firm to make sure that the rep is doing a good job. And if I'm a firm and I've got a bad advisor or an advisor who's not doing things, that's a risk to the firm. That person will most likely not be at that firm for very long. What's important in we keep throwing around words and words are really important. So the word broker dealer, when we talk about fiduciary and the word broker dealer, that's not what we're talking about. We're not saying broker dealers should be fiduciaries. What we're saying is broker dealer is a type of firm that can do everything from raising capital through additional public offerings, having a trading desk that buys and sells bonds and stocks. We're not talking about those folks being fiduciaries. The folks who we're talking about being fiduciaries in a broker dealer are those who are giving personal financial advice, but just happen to have like a series seven or series six regulated by FINRA. Those are the folks that we're talking about being um, uh, held to a fiduciary standard. And I think that's an important point for people who are listening is that if you're within a broker dealer, like you're talking about what the actual rule is. Each broker dealer has to interpret what that rule is. And so their processes are all going to be different. Is that 
correct? So the buyer's contract, the way that I sort of envision the buyer's contract is the firm is going to spend you know some money with attorneys creating this contract that's going to be easily replicatable in regards to giving them to their advisors to then have their client sign and connect it with the with the ultimately with the firm and the and the client, and that's important. So again, there's going to be very little leeway that an individual advisor at a major firm is going to have with that contract because of the fact that you know it's basically litigation risk and firms want to make sure that their reps that their advisors are doing you know fiduciary work on behalf of their of their clients and again smaller firms will have to take a template like approach and then kind of make it their own in regards to their business and things like that so it behooves advisors you know most advisors if not all should have an attorney some sort of a um, attorney who knows you know RIA law knows uh, FINRA and things like that. Those are the folks that they're going to need to lean on to make sure that their contracts, when they're dealing with uh, qualified assets, are in place for their client. One of the things that I had heard somebody say a couple of years ago is, you know, that we just need like what the credit card companies have, where it's you know one sheet that lists out exactly what it is, everything in the same terms of you know APR, you know interest rate every year versus, you know, monthly interest rate, things like that. Does this vice do that? I mean, is that what this is? It's kind of that comparison for clients to be able to like compare apples to apples between advisors now. You know, when we were talking to um, officials at the Department of Labor, this was kind of fun. They were talking about disclosure. And what I shared with them is a recent trip I had when I went and I rented a car. And the 17 pages of disclosure that, you know, sign here, sign, you're not even reading it, right? Because your family's beating you over the head to get to the beach. You're not going to read through 15 pages of disclosure, which you know, in the end is not in your favor. And so one of the things we were talking about was just what you had outlined was what I likened it to is almost like a food label, right? Is if I pick up a can of peas and another can of peas, right? I can kind of compare them relatively easily because the labels are very similar, and that would be a great approach in the profession is if for some reason we had a, a template type of approach that would allow me to compare firm A, B, and C in a very easy and, and non-legal you know, language way. Um, it would be absolutely terrific. And I don't know we're going to get there anytime soon. I want to talk kind of that bigger picture. The FPA does a lot of work in the legislative world. What is, I guess it's FPA and the co FPA as part of the coalition. What are their talking points, if you would, or like, what are their big, their big issues? So the financial planning coalition has been around since 2009. And again, it's this certified financial planner board of standards and national association of personal financial advisors. So you've got two of the three, which is CFP board and FPA who are compensation neutral. We don't care if you get paid by fee or commission. We just want you to be a fiduciary where NAFA is their focus is on fee only, fee only advisors and, and fiduciary in that capacity. So when we talk about legislative issues, you know, the vast majority of the time we're all on the same page. And so when we're talking to legislatures, when we do our Capitol Hill Day and our advocacy day, um, one of the things that we're doing is we're saying, hi, we're the FPA. Or, or high word, the coalition, because they don't know who we are. It's not like Crest Toothpaste and the American Dental Association from TV commercials. Nobody really knows who the Financial Planning Association is. But I can tell you, since being involved 
as I have over the last six years, three years on the board and then three years in this leadership role, um, FPA has really uh, become known, a known entity on Capitol Hill. We've been asked by different committees for input from our members. So when they're talking about laws and they're talking about structuring new rules, that they're actually calling up FPA and asking us to hook them up with some advisors who can give them some input on some of the rules that they're talking about. Now, this isn't something we go off to the rooftops and start screaming because from, from our standpoint, it's more of the, the quiet confidence that legislators have with reaching out to the FPA. But it kind of goes back to the thing you were talking about in terms of the dues. There's a lot of things going on that may not be necessarily visible to members, but we are advocating on behalf of our members day in and day out. And this is just sort of one of the areas when lawmakers are sort of looking at new rules that they tap into us and we kind of give them the practical application of that rule and what it may mean. So um, it, it's, it's a fascinating journey on the legislative side. With the FPA and looking forward you know, to the next 10 years, I mean, are there big legislative items that they're looking to help enact or like, what do you see the future going forward for the coalition regarding legislative issues? Yeah, that's a great question. So the uh, Department of Labor rule just sort of sprung up and that took up a lot of our focus and a lot of our time. And so when we look around, not only um, nationally at federal laws, like in the Capitol and things like that, but also in the states. So for instance, um, members may not be aware of this, but there have been states that have said, you know what, we think that the taxing of financial planning services would be great in terms of revenue for the state. And we rally not only uh, our members, but also some lobbyists uh, within those particular states to try to fight against those kind of rules. Because if you're taxed on your financial planning services, that's an additional tax on you, less profit, you're not gonna necessarily raise fees for the clients. So again, kind of going back to the value add, we're, we're always out there trying to make sure that our members, and this only not affects members obviously, but a lot more people in, in a particular state, are being watched all over from that standpoint. So in regards to particular legislative issues, there's nothing on the horizon, at least I, I can see that we're like, wow, you know what, this is something that we're gearing up for battle um, on the horizon. You've got obviously uh, the presidential election coming in, you're going to have a huge turnover uh, in the House uh, and the Senate, and we don't know what the legislative calendar is going to look like. All I know is next June, we're going to be on Capitol Hill for, I believe it's our fourth advocacy day. We'd love for more people to come. Um, I have found it absolutely fascinating to walk the halls of Congress and just meet and greet folks. Um, their assess their, your access to them is, is pretty amazing, especially if you're a constituent or a voter. And we're often viewed upon as the, the, the reasonable people. And so what I mean by that is, is FPA is often the voice of reason. So because of the fact that we're compensation neutral, because of the fact that we have members who do insurance and members who do securities and members who do investment advice, we've got a lot of different voices in regards to what legislative issues may come up. And so we don't scream or yell at them. We just sort of sit down and have a great back and forth in terms of what they're trying to accomplish. And again, what our members can add in terms of practical experience. So the fiduciary rule is just for retirement accounts, IRA accounts. What would need to happen for that fiduciary rule to apply to all individual accounts and 
any other registration on accounts. That's a great, that's a great element. Um, the Securities and Exchange Commission has been talking about implementing and revising the fiduciary rule, um, I believe since 2010. Um, so they haven't quite yet gotten through that. That's a, I mean, the amount of pressure that was put upon the DOL in implementing this fiduciary rule was absolutely incredible. And they, they came out of it, you know, relatively, you know, I don't want to say unscathed, but they were able to fight the pressure of the profession. And so if I look at the Securities and Exchange Commission, the fact that the Department of Labor has laid the groundwork for fiduciary rule on qualified accounts for retirement accounts may allow them a little bit more space to now start engaging that on the non-retirement side. So basically what this basically what this boils down to is just those folks who are just doing commission business that's sort of the folks that are going to be ensnared. The, the last, you know, folks that are kind of running around out there under a suitability standard and not fiduciary because as an investment advisor taking fees, I'm under a fiduciary standard. So the United States is one of sort of the last um, uh, places on the planet with, with robust capital markets that have yet to embrace full fiduciary. You know, the UK, Australia, and a bunch of other um countries have embraced fiduciary. We just happen to be very slow at this. So is this an issue that the SEC has to take up for like the individual non-retirement accounts or how does FINRA play a role in that? Yeah, that would be that would be the Securities and Exchange Commission because the Department of Labor, my understanding, and I'm not an attorney in this area, but my understanding because of the fact that they have, they created the ERISA law, that's where they have their purview over qualified accounts and retirement accounts. Um, they don't have that on the non-taxable side. That would be that would be the regulators under ERISA, or sorry, that would be the regulators under the SEC. It, it's ironic again that if I'm just an insurance advisor, so all I have is an insurance license, and all I'm doing is selling insurance, the SEC doesn't oversee me. So even if we went to that side and all I was doing was selling insurance, and all I had was an insurance license in a non-qualified account, there's still relatively little regulation around that as well. And when we were going through this process and hearing a lot of debate on Capitol Hill on you know, the fact that the SEC should be doing fiduciary on ERISA, I was talking about the changed landscape in financial services that back in the day, if I was an insurance person, I was most likely only selling life insurance and whole life insurance and things like that. You fast forward and there's a lot of insurance products that are out there fixed index annuities uh, in particular that have very little oversight in regards to how folks do business with their clients. So really for this fiduciary to take over on all accounts, I mean, it's going to be a really big effort. It would have to be a really big effort across multiple agencies. Yeah. I mean, the, the challenging part about this, so before going into this leadership role with FPA, you know, I kind of knew fiduciary. And then you start hearing voices and you start tapping into those folks who live fiduciary, who are just brilliant in regards to fiduciary law and rules. The complexity, fiduciary sounds great, right? So you grab your guitar, we have a campfire, we hold hands and sing kumba. It's, you know, it's all best interest. It's terrific. The legal complexities of a fiduciary are very deep. 
you have different fiduciary standards. You have state fiduciary standards. You have CFP uh, board fiduciary standard, SEC fiduciary standard. You've got ERISA fiduciary standard. And all of these fiduciary standards are different in one way or another. And at some point in time, it would be great if all of these become reconciled. I don't see that in my near-term future, but it is complicated. If I look at one of the things I mentioned is if I'm a securities salesperson and if I uh, am selling securities on behalf of a client and a client has an argument with me or a disagreement, we would go into arbitration. So the client says I did something wrong and I said I did something right. Well, the number one claim in arbitration is breach of fiduciary rule. So even though I'm on a suitability standard, breach of fiduciary uh, obligation is the number one complaint against brokers. So there's this disconnect between what's going on within the profession that quite frankly, clients have no clue or no idea, nor should they even have to worry about, wait, are you this fiduciary or not a fiduciary or that fiduciary? Similar to a doctor, right? If I go to a doctor, I think the doctor is going to look after my physical health, that it's going to be my best interest at heart. The same thing, in my humble opinion, should be done if you're seeking financial advice, not just a product, but you're seeking financial advice, that person should be doing that in a fiduciary capacity. Because when you're handling somebody's nest egg, it's, it's, it's counterintuitive to say, well, why wouldn't you have that individual's best interest at heart? So for people who are listening to this, what can somebody do to get involved? Well, I can share with you briefly my story. I've been a member of FPA since about 1996. That's when it was the ICFP and two organizations merged in 2000 to form the Financial Planning Association. So I was involved for quite a while. And then in 2004, our chapter executive here at the Illinois chapter asked if anybody wants to volunteer for the technology committee. And I'm like, yeah, you know, I like technology. I'm good at it. I raised my hand. And that set me on a journey that has been ultimately amazing. I could not have projected at all in regards to where I sit today. So I went from a committee person just helping out on the website and some basic technology with the chapter to serving on the board to then serving as the, the Illinois chapter president to then serving on the national board and now as chairman of FPA. And it has been a journey that's been ultimately amazing. And so what I often try to tell people is the more you give, the more you get back. I mean, I can never repay FPA enough for what it has done for me personally and professionally. I mean, my leadership abilities through training through FPA and through others uh, has been invaluable in terms of where I'm at today. And so what I often try to guide people on is that there's light lifting and there's heavy lifting. Serving on a committee, doing some pro bono work, that's very light lifting. And if you happen to get sucked into it, which is not a bad thing, it's a good thing, you find yourself on this journey where you're doing a little bit more heavy lifting. I mean, quite directly, my role today, this is my, you know, I have a day job being that of a certified financial planner, and I have another day job, which is that as chairman of the board of the Financial Planning Association. I've made it work. You know, I don't have a lot of downtime, but it's just been absolutely an amazing journey. So anybody who's listening at all to this, get engaged with your local chapter, get engaged in the volunteer um, center on the FPA national website, onefpa.org. Somehow get involved. And what you're going to find is as your journey progresses, you're going to get a lot more out of it than you give. 
Thanks for joining us on this episode of You're a Financial Planner, Now What? I hope you enjoyed this episode. I know that I did. If you haven't already, be sure to sign up for our emails at financialplannerpodcast.com to be the first to know of upcoming events, including the new client case studies we'll be releasing soon. I'll talk with you again next week.